Welcome to Paranormal Almanac. With your host, Kurt Sandvig. That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac, let's talk about Bigfoot and nothing but Bigfoot. But first, as always, we have shoutouts, and I'm going to cruise through these names for everybody. We got Aaron, Aaron, Ah Monsters, Laura and David, Alicia, Amber, Andrew, April, Seth, Audra, Austin, Autumn, Bill, Bob, Brandon, Brett, Carolyn, Carrie, Christine, Chuck, Cindy, Cole, Dan, Daniel, Devin, Dill, Donald, Dorian, Elliot, Erica, Aaron, Ezram, Harvey, Heidi, I, Isabel, J. Mark, Jade, Jaime, Jason, Jeff, Jeff, Jennifer, Gerald, Jerry, Jim, Joe, Joanne, Joe, John, Joshua, Juliana, Carrie, Kelly, Kelsey, Kimberly, Kira, Lash, Laura, 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 Rutho, Lauren, Mangano, and Phil. Lauren, hey Lauren, Lawrence, Leo, Lindsay, Lorraine, M. Caballero, Martin, Matt, Matt, Megan, Eric, Milo, Nanashi, Nick, Pablo, Paula, Rachel, Reed, Robin, Rosa, Russell, Sarah, Sarah, Sean, the ever-loving Bishop, Shelly, Sonny, Suzanne, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson. I just missed a call from Todd because I was working on this. I am sorry, Todd. I'll call you back afterwards. Tanya, Trey, Veronica, and Will. Welcome, Will. Welcome to all of you to another episode of Paranormal Almanac. Like I said earlier, this one, there is a reason for this episode because there are two new shirts out now at paranormalalmanac.storeenvy.com. Don't fucking shoot Bigfoot shirts. Censored and explicit. Buy them both. Buy them all. Buy them for friends. Buy them for strangers. I don't care. Just please buy them because it costs money. Uh, for me to make them. But anyhow, I hope you guys like them. I had this wonderful artist friend named Jessica that um, that I hired to create the shirts. She worked with me. She was fantastic. I really hope you guys like the shirts. Once again, you can uh, you can find links on Facebook and, and on uh, Instagram, but it's paranormalalmanac.storeenvy.com. I hope you guys like the shirt. They are the first of many new merch coming out. Like I said, I've got a lot of ideas, I've got a lot of great artists, I just gotta get a lot of time and money to give to these fantastic artists, because they deserve the time and the money to do it. Uh, but, until then, it's time for Paranormal News. Paranormal News. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Paranormal News. First up in paranormal news, mechanic shares eerie footage of a mysterious creature which stalked him through bushland where yowies have been spotted before. Now you might be saying, I thought you said this was an all Bigfoot episode. Well it is, yowies are Australians Bigfoot. 
A mechanic has shared footage after claiming to have had something thrown at him by an unidentified creature in, guests in dense bushland. Mark Demetrio, sure, was cleaning out a bucket near the Imbel State Forest in southeast Queensland while gold prospecting when he claimed something was thrown at him. Something large was thrown towards me after tapping the bottom of the bucket to clean it. I have a feeling I was being watched as the bush went silent for a few minutes. So this is what I filmed. It moves to the left after I moved. Sorry about the video. As I was watching it, it was, uh... Sorry, I was, sorry about the video. As I was watching it, as well as so kept... While I was watching it as well, so kept dropping my phone down. It's large and black. I really hope you can see it. I was in the Imbel State Forest. After taking out his phone and filming a dense area of bush, he can be heard trying to coax whatever he sees out of the bush. I can see you looking at me, is here it's saying, as he continues to film the thick brush. Mr. Demitro, whatever, sorry, I'm probably screwing up your name, then tried to encourage whatever he was seeing to come out. He said it was a large, he said it was a large log which was thrown in his direction, which made him feel uneasy. It threw a log towards me and was looking at me when I moved closer to it. It moved, but it stayed, but it was still there. The video immediately got the attention of social media, and everybody's saying, what the hell was it? He said, no idea, but it didn't mind me watch, but he didn't mind watching me. I was trying to film and look with a pick in my hand as I was, as it was a bit worrying. I left straight away. He said he plans to go back to the same spot to try and find any evidence of what it was, including footprints. What do you think it might have been? Are you sure it wasn't just a dark bit of bushland like a shaded area? He said it, he said no, it threw a log at me. Cryptozoological researcher Gary Opit has heard tales of Yowie sightings in the same Imbel State Forest. Another woman told ABC that her friend saw a Yowie in the same region in 2014. It was a very good friend of mine, and I do believe everything she tells me. She was also with another friend who I do know quite well, who is also a school teacher, and neither wants to be named for fear of being ridiculed. That's sad. We gotta stop doing that. I can tell you that right off the bat. Why ridicule somebody for seeing something that they don't know what it was that could possibly be an undiscovered creature, or a UFO, or a ghost, or whatever? Stop ridiculing people for coming forward. If we stop doing that, more people would actually feel inclined to come forward. We can actually get to the bottom of some of this stuff. All right, I'm going to watch the actual video right now. I see trees. I see bush. I'll be honest. I don't really see much in the video, but I'm going to post it up on uh, Facebook as well so you guys can take a look at it, see what you guys think. Um... I can't say there's not anything there. That's about as good a video as I would expect someone to be filming in dense bushland. Now, the next one is a little departure from the Bigfoot, but I wanted to add it because it's for sale now, and I really want to get people out there to buy it if they can, because if you buy it, I will come. Uh, a Victorian mansion dating back to the 1890s is for sale, but there's a catch. It may come with some permanent house guests. It's actually a gorgeous home. It's in really good shape for as old as it is, says Heather Bland, the agent selling the home on Warren Street in Mitchell, Indiana. Known as Whispers Estate, the home has a history of paranormal activity. The $130 list price includes the furniture and the ghosts. So let me click on it real quick. It says that uh, Whispers Estate is a beautiful 3,700 square foot Victorian home nestled in the pleasant city of Mitchell, Indiana. Aside from, the author, aside from offering visitors a friendly atmosphere and a place to relax and unwind, it is one of the few places you can actually go that the walls actually do talk. Whispers Estate is one of those places that every ghost hunter wishes they had in their neighborhood. 
Oh, hi, Stitch. How you doing, pal? So what's actually been seen there? Well, a whole hell of a lot, apparently. There's a documentary about this. There is, um... Oh, I clicked off it. I'm sorry. There's a documentary. There's been... It's been on TV and numerous shows. A ton of shows, actually. It's uh, There's a film. There's books. Uh, Haunted Hoosier Halls book. Uh, Haunted Travels of Indiana book. So Whisper's Estate is apparently a very, very known, well-known haunted estate. They go on to tell the backstory of it. Uh, it's actually really interesting. If you, I highly suggest you read it. Uh, guests have experienced earthquake-like tremors while in the doctor's bathroom. Uh, EVP sessions have revealed, have revealed many entities in the house at any given time, but you don't always need recording equipment to hear these disembodied voices at Whisper's estate. Many young women have reported hearing Dr. Gibbons whisper in their ear, as well as sometimes grabbing and groping them. Oh, so it's a perv ghost. You get a pervy old... 18th century doctor ghost? Wow, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, so it's got a lot of bunch of other stuff and things that mess with you while you sleep. Uh, again, sounds like it's uh, got a quite the pervy ghost. So if you're looking for a house in Indiana that just happens to have a pervy ghost doctor, well, have I got one for you. I'll put that link also at uh, on Facebook as well. Um, the next up in paranormal news, sticking closer to the theme for tonight's episode, a pot Sasquatch covered in marijuana leaves crashes a live news report during a snowstorm. A pot Sasquatch, why don't they just call him Pot Squatch? That's so much better. Covered in marijuana leaves wandered into WWLP, a live news uh, live news report by meteorologist Jennifer Padgley, sure, on a snowstorm in Springfield, Massachusetts. After being spotted by the camera, the beast tried to make a hasty retreat behind a bush. So let's watch this footage since the snow started this morning at about oh there he is there's pot squatch in the background he's short for a pot squatch has been reduced i've seen countless spin outs and um and uh and she just noticed pot squatch have even gotten all right so yeah um it's very cute very funny i like it I'll put it up on the Facebook page as well. Like I said, Pot Squatch is a much better name than Pot Sasquatch, but hey, I wasn't there, so whatever. Alrighty, once again, thank you everybody who keeps sending me in these fantastic stories. I get a lot of people that send me in stories all the time. I can't thank you enough. I also can't respond quick enough. I know I'm very behind on my messages and my emails and everything else. I talked about it on the Sean Bishop episode. I'll talk about it again right now. I am very sorry. I was planning... My goal was today to get caught up on everything, but I don't know if you can tell from my voice. I might have stayed out a little too late last night. I might have drank a little bit too much last night, and um, it was a friend's birthday party, so I am a little um, hungover, a little hoarse, and uh, today is just basically shot. Um, when I tried to record earlier, we actually had a hailstorm in Burbank, California, where I live, and it lasted for a good long while, so I actually had to scrap the whole beginning of this episode and start from scratch. So, um, I'll get to your messages. I've got a long weekend coming up, which I cannot wait for. I can finally get ahead on what matters most to me, and that's not my day job. That's this job, Paranormal Almanac. I've got a five-day weekend coming up that I plan on, you know, relaxing, enjoying, spending some time with Stitch, but... I also plan on doing my patron episode that I have already written and ready to go. I just want my voice to be a little bit better for that one. Um, it's a really neat new story, a brand new story 
that I can't wait to talk to you guys about. Head on over to patreon.com slash paranormalalmanac if you want to hear that one. That'll be coming out soon. But this weekend, I also want to get caught up on replying back to all you wonderful people. You fantastic people that message me and say thank you or say that you like the episode or give me some phenomenal stories that Sean Bishop and I will be recording very soon. I can't wait for that one as well. But let's get into this episode. As hoarse as I am, as weird as I sound, let's get into this episode devoted to even more rarely heard Bigfoot stories. And as always, say it with me, kids. Don't fucking shoot Bigfoot. And we'll do that in just one second because I forgot to take a quick break. So let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with the Bigfoot stories. We are back, and let's get right into this one. As I'm sure you know, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti, whatever you want to call it, there's a ton of names. Whatever you want to call them have been seen on every continent except Antarctica. That should tell you right there that people are seeing something. They're not misidentifying bears. They have been seen by every indigenous peoples on every land and seen for hundreds of years. So whether you want to believe they're still out there, that a gigantic missing link can still remain elusive to this day, regardless of what you want to believe, they are still spotted weekly. And like I was saying, if only a fraction of those sightings are real, that they aren't bears or hunters or pot squatches or whatever, if only a fraction of them are, are real, are truly something else, something undiscovered. If you just keep an open mind, we might one day get the proof we need. Hopefully, not because someone kills one, but hopefully, one day, we will finally be able to prove to science and the skeptics alike that Bigfoot are real. These stories could have ended differently Nah, I'll skip that part. I'm just going to get right into it. I want to start this episode with the best-named Bigfoot out there. And that's Oklahoma's Abominable Chicken Man. Now, this one happened in Oklahoma City in 1971. An El Reno farmer... I think it's El Reno. Farmer was... Wa oh, God, I hope it's El Reno. I'm sure it's not. Then El Reno farmer walked, uh, walked out to his chicken coop one day in December and found that the coop door was ripped off and on the ground next to the coop. Now on the surface of the door and inside the coop on the walls were a bunch of strange handprints, about seven inches long and five inches wide. The farmer was concerned because his chickens were killed and something big had ripped off the coop door. So he called a state game ranger who showed up and he was just as stumped and concerned as the farmer. So he's taking a look at the prints on the doors and he goes, I don't know what the hell these things are either. So he sent the door to the Oklahoma City Zoo to see if the experts there could identify the prints. But scary enough, they couldn't either. Zoo director Lawrence Curtis said that the prints appear primate, but that's, a, that's about as much as he could identify. Now he noticed that the thumb of the print was unusual and crooked, like it had been deformed or injured in the past. And he said, it resembles a gorilla, but it's more like a man. 
Now, this isn't some backwoods Bigfoot hunter. This is a primatologist, a zoo director named Lawrence Curtis. He said, It appears that whatever made the prints was walking on all fours. There were some footprints on the ground outside. And again, what's odd about that is, this was December in Oklahoma. It was cold. It was very cold. And this thing, whatever it was, was definitely barefoot. So while this is happening, other reports start flooding in from all around the state, including a man in Stillwater, which is 100 miles northeast of El Reno, and a woman in McAllister, which is 150 miles southeast. So we got 100 miles northeast and 150 miles southeast, who both found similar prints. Now, many of the communications contain photographs or drawings of the footprints, and they all look like Bigfoot tracks. The, uh, there was a guy in Springfield, Arkansas, that gave a detailed sighting of three similar animals. He said all of them were hairy, they're about six foot tall, and extremely strong. One of them pushed over a tree. Now, this guy also said that uh, cattle in the area had been dying for no apparent reason, and he said, I think they're victims of these ginormous hairy creatures. They went on to say that investigators came to one conclusion. They said, we've shown it to several mammologists and several wildlife experts in Oklahoma and some passing through. All agree, it's a primate. These prints were made by some sort of man, perhaps one looking for chickens. And since the reports came from, you know, different places all around, basically the same time, 150, 100 miles northeast, 150 miles southeast, another one in a different state, Everyone involved in this investigation concluded there was probably more than one of whatever the hell this was that was doing it. Now, the reports eventually died down, but not entirely. And I checked and Sasquatch reports are still come out, still come out from that area. But until they find something that matches those prints, this is as far as we come with the Oklahoma abominable chicken man. I'm going to read to you real quick. It's basically the verbatim, the story that I just read to you, but it's from the actual newspaper at the time. And this comes from the Kansas City Times, March 1st, 1971. Chicken man baffles experts. There's something out there. It walks like a gorilla, leaves handprints like a man, rips doors off their hinges, and it likes chickens. For want of a better name, it's called Oklahoma's Abominable Chicken Man. It's a long story and it goes like this. Well, I just told you that story, but... I'm going to finish it off with how this article ends. The abominable chicken man is being compared with reports of similar findings from California. In this case, persons have reported seeing a seven-foot man-like creature wandering in the northern wilds. Curtis is trying to find a book and a magazine article that tell about the California sightings. He's eager to make a comparison. In the meantime, he has that chicken coop door in his office for reference and one supposes... For conversations. So I'm trying to get a hold of this guy, this guy Lawrence Curtis that I was talking about earlier, the zoo director. Um, I put some feelers out there. I'm hoping he still has the door. I'm sure I'm not the first person that's hit him up for it. Um, I just want to know if they've done any DNA tests on there, if they've, you know, what are the best high-res photos that I can get of this chicken coop door, or if he still even has it. It's 40, you know, 40-some years, 48 years later, he might not even have it anymore. He might not even be around anymore. But I'm hoping that that door is still out there 
and I can get photos of it or get the door itself. I think that'd be fantastic. Oh, um, before I leave the Abominable Chicken Man, I found this comment from a reader of a report about the Chicken Man from about 10, 15 years ago, so I wanted to add it to the end of this little story. Hello, I'm very familiar with this incident. I lived in the El Reno area when this occurred. The exact location is the southwest bank of the northern of the North Canadian River on the west side of the old metal bridge on Highway 81. A new bridge has now been built. However, the original is still there. A farmer named Palmer owned the farmhouse where the incident took place. There is a large ditch or slough running north towards the river between the highway and the farmhouse. The creature came off the river following the slough and tore up the chicken house. So... I don't know if you'd call that like a first-hand knowledge or first-hand experience, but it was someone from that area from that time who had a little bit more of in, a little more information about it. So I thought it was kind of neat to throw it in there. So, um, yeah, if you were in that area at that time and you have any more information about the Oklahoma Abominable Chicken Man, please let me know. So next up is an incredible story from 1784. I'm going to say that date again. 1784 about a Bigfoot. It was even in the newspapers. So, let me tell you the story and then immediately debunk it. I'm very sorry. So, like I said, it was supposedly written in the London Times and it was dated January 4th, January 4th 1784. There is lately arrived in France from North America a wild man who was caught in the woods 200 miles back from the Lake of the Woods by a party of Indians. They had... They had seen him several times, but he was so swift of foot that they, could by, that they could by no means catch up with him. He is near seven feet tall. He is near seven feet high, covered with hair, but has little appearance of understanding and is remarkably sullen and subdued. When he was taken, half a bear was found lying by him, whom he had just killed. I mean, yeah, that's a great story, right? That is fantastic. It's um, total bullshit. But books have been written about this article. Hundreds of sites use it as one of the earliest Bigfoot stories ever written about. And it's always written exactly like I read it to you, verbatim. Well, here's the problem. The Times is a British daily, Monday to Saturday, national newspaper based in London. So far, so good. But... It began in 1785. Let me repeat that date. 1785. A full year after this, so after this story supposedly was written. And the newspaper wasn't even called The Times then. It was under the title The Daily Universal Register. Adopting its current name on January 1st, 1788. Four years after this story. Yet, like I said... Hundreds of sites and books quote this supposed news story. There are no photos. There are no reprints of the actual article. Everyone just regurgitates the same snippet of an awesome story and calls it fact without ever fact-checking it. And it drives me mad. So what did I do? I did exactly what I just told you. I investigated it. I said, that's a cool story. Can I find it? on newspapers.com. Can I find a copy of this newspaper? And as I just told you, well, no, I can't because it didn't exist then. 1784. The newspaper didn't begin till 1785. 
Sorry, that cool news story about a Bigfoot from 1784 is BS. Alrighty, so let's talk about something else that has been seen a lot starting in 1970s. Something that has had pictures taken of it. And spoilers, they are bizarre and I can't debunk them. What am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about the skunk ape. Or the swamp ape. The stink ape. The Florida Bigfoot. The Louisiana Bigfoot. The Miyaka ape. The swamp scotch. And Miyaka skunk ape. They're all the same thing. It resides in Arkansas, North Carolina, but mostly in Florida. Now, the earliest report I can find about the skunk ape talks about a, a, like a large, hairy, thick-necked Sasquatch, but this one was white. Almost all other skunk ape reports describe it just like Bigfoot, with dark brown or reddish brown or black-gray fur all over its huge body, and the skunk ape lives up to its name. It stinks like rotted flesh or a skunk. So that's just the first story that I could find about it. The earliest report. It was a white Sasquatch. It was in the area. But then, in 1957, in the Everglades, in the late afternoon, a boar hunter saw what looked like a bear squatting, but then the thing slowly stood up to a staggering height of about eight feet. As he backed out of the dark thicket, he glimpsed sunlight on the eyes of the creature yielding a, quote, yellow-orange glow like the eyes of a wild animal. Now, the hunter ran back to his truck, and he got out of there. I should note that there are black bears that live in the area, and they are known to stand on their hind legs and walk, so I'm not exactly convinced that this guy saw what he thinks he saw. I'm hoping, since he was a hunter, he would know the difference between a bear and a Bigfoot, but... I don't think he got a good enough glimpse of it yet, so I'm not convinced yet. But then, in 1960, near Hollywood, Florida, something described as an adolescent skunk ape walked out of a drainage ditch just after midnight, then stood there in the center of the road. Now, witnesses in cars about 50 yards away said that the creature was no more than 5 feet tall, had long arms, and a rounded head. They said it was covered in a dark fur and had no observable facial features. Better. You would think that if anybody saw a small bear, a young bear, and watched it for a while, because you would, if a bear came out of a drainage ditch and I was in a car about 50 yards away, I would sit there and watch it for as long as I could. Now, this one didn't seem to match the description of a bear. They said adolescent skunk ape, so better. We're getting better. Then, in 1966, near the Andote River, or Andote River, a man reported seeing Bigfoot, quote, standing in the trees and having a, quote, rancid, putrid odor. Okay, sure, sounds good, but the story of a skunk ape really, and I mean really, took off in 1974. And that's when 10-year-old Dave Sheely said he saw it for the first time while out with his brother Dave. Now, he says his dad actually found odd footprints that turned out to be from the skunk ape about 10 years before this, but this was the real first encounter that kind of really kicked off that skunk ape lore. Dave says, quote, It was walking across the swamp, and my brother, my brother spotted it first, but I couldn't see it over the grass. I wasn't tall enough. My brother picked me up, and I saw it about 100 yards away. We were just kids, but we'd heard about it, and knew for sure what we were looking at. It looked like a man, but completely covered with hair. 
Now they said, now he said, as they stood there frozen in fear watching it, it began to rain and the skunk ape quickly made its way to the nearby woods, the marshy woods. That began a lifelong obsession for Dave to find the skunk ape. Now on July 8th, 2000, Dave took a video. I'll post it on Facebook to let you see it. But um, he said he took a video of the skunk ape. I watched this video and I got to say it's not good enough quality for it to be conclusive for me. I mean, it easily could have been a guy in a ghillie suit or a cheap gorilla costume or a Bigfoot costume. It was, you know, the year 2000. It's only 20 years ago. So that one will be on Facebook as well. Watch it. Let me know what you think. But now let's get to the most intriguing skunk ape encounter that happens to start off the most sketchiest way possible. It's called the Miyaka Skunk Ape Photos. Now, these photos are quickly becoming as famous as the Patterson-Gimlin footage of Bigfoot. I mean, they really are. If you say skunk ape and you've seen these photos, this is what pops up into your head immediately. So, like I said, it's called the Miyaka skunk ape photos. Really quickly, Miyaka is a Florida state park that's located nine miles east of Interstate 75 in Sarasota County, and a portion of southern of uh, southeastern Manatee County on the Atlantic Coastal Plain. The state park consists of 37,000 acres, making it one of the state's largest parks. And this is where these photos get their name from. Because on December 22nd, the year 2000, a letter signed, God bless, I prefer to remain anonymous. Don't worry, I'll read you the whole letter in a minute. But that letter was mailed to the Sarasota Sheriff's Department with two photos that a woman said she had taken in her backyard in late September or early October of that same year of 2000. So in that letter that was sent with the photos, the sender identifies herself as a senior citizen and claims to live near I-75, which is along the, My the Miyaka State Park or Miyaka, I don't know. Um, now, she went on to write that her husband had thought it was an orangutan and how her daughter had brought down apples from up north and they were on her back porch. So, basically, for two nights, something made a lot of noise and was eating her apples. So, her and her husband said, you know what, let's try and get a picture of what's eating our apples, what's taking all of the apples that the daughter brought back. So, on the third night... They hear some loud noises, some, you know, crashing and banging and stuff's in the backyard. They can hear it going through uh, brush and whatnot. So she runs out. It's pitch black. She said it was pitch black. She snapped a picture with a flash and was immediately surprised that the creature was about 10 feet away. She said she didn't even see it until the flash went off. She said it was crouched down by a hedge roll and... um and was about seven feet tall in the crouching position. Now, when she took the first picture, it was crouched, then it immediately stood up and started walking away. She said it made a whoop noise as it left. She said it smelled like a skunk. She said after the photos were taken, they immediately got a dog to try and keep this thing out of their backyard. Why? Because it was a big, scary creature? No, she said because she heard these kind of creatures have hepatitis. I don't know either. That's what she says in the letter. So she asked in the letter if anyone is missing an orangutan and why the sheriff department hadn't told residents about an animal this size on the loose. 
She said she didn't call the police that night because she didn't want any fuss or people with guns traipsing through her backyard, but wanted the police to look after the situation and that she didn't want her backyard to turn into, quote, someone else's circus. And again, she ends the letter with, God bless, I prefer to remain anonymous. Yep, anonymous skunk ape photos, the worst. There is nothing worse than, how did we get this information? Oh, from anonymous thing that was mailed to you or given to you or you found. That is the worst way to get credible information, but that's what we have. Alrighty, so let's actually get to the photos themselves. The photos show a ginormous, dark brown and gray and black, orangutan-looking thing. I mean, the husband was right. It does look like some kind of big chimpanzee or orangutan or something. But there's no real way to determine just how big this thing is because we don't have any reference points other than that palm frond-looking plant thing in front of it. Now, the eyewitness testimony says it was seven feet in a crouching position, and I don't think she's a liar, but, you know, looking at it scientifically from what we have, the proof that we have, all I have to go on are two photos. But speaking of those two photos and scientific data, there is something interesting to note, and that's the creature's eyes. They glow. Now, that glow is called tapetum lucidum, and uh, primates don't have it. You know how that thing, like, if you take a uh, picture of your cat and you get the glowing eyes? That is this tapetum lucidum, which I'm sure I'm not saying that right either. Now, sure, the, uh, the photograph that she took, it could just be like red eye from a flash, but it really, really does look like when you take a picture of a cat and you get those glowing eyes. That is very interesting because, again, primates don't have that. All right, so now let's get to the skeptics. Many people note the, quote, flatness of the creature. Well, I kind of can see what they're saying. To me, it does not look like a cardboard cutout, but a lot of skeptics say that this is just a cardboard cutout that someone put behind Franz to kind of conceal it. Sure, maybe. I can't say no, but a cardboard cutout of what? Who made it? Why is it in a different position in the second picture than the first picture? That seems weird for a cardboard cutout. Why hasn't anyone come forward from a local print shop to say, Oh, yeah, this guy, yeah, he paid me to make a full-size cardboard cutout of some weird orangutan kind of looking thing. It's just not a convincing argument. And again, I keep referring it to an orangutan because that's what she said as well. It does not look exactly like an orangutan at all. The fur is different, the face is a little bit different, it's hunched over, sure, but it looks more like a monkey than an orangutan to me, but it doesn't really look like a chimpanzee or anything else. It has insanely long arms. You can see its hands in the palm fronds, so the arms are very disproportionately large. I just don't know what the hell it is. Now, some critics have said that the creature photographed in Florida was actually photographed in a Bigfoot Ripley's Believe It or Not model in Wisconsin. So, I found those photos. Thankfully, they weren't that hard to find. I compared the two photos, and frankly, they are not the same at all. So I say bullshit to that theory right off the bat. And except for that dumb anonymous letter part of it, there's very little of it that seems suspect. 
sure. I wish someone would have come forward by now and said, yeah, I took the photos or yeah, my grandma took the photos and she wasn't, she's not around anymore, but she told, told us all about them. But until this happens, the pictures that we have here are all we have to go by. And they certainly are bizarre. Like I said, I can't debunk them at face value. So go to Facebook, go to Instagram to see them. Tell me what you think. If it's a hoax, it's a pretty good one. And yes, I do realize it could very easily be a hoax. It could be Photoshop. It could be a number of things. It could be someone bought a weird monkey costume, and that's why they're kind of crouching and hiding behind those palm fronds or whatever you want to call them. Sure, I agree with all of that. I'm not saying they're 100% real, but I'm also not debunking them. From what I have, from the facts that we have, from the data that we have, I don't know what the hell it is that I'm looking at. And if I was this lady and I walked outside and I took this photo, I would never go in my backyard again. Screw that. Never again. This thing looks mean, if you will. But let's move on to the next one. And this next one is another unusual one that was nicknamed Cripplefoot. Let me start this one by saying I could have sworn I did an episode about Cripplefoot, but I can't find it in my episode files So if I have, I'm sorry. And if I haven't, well, I'm about to. But I would have sworn I did an episode about Cripplefoot, but I can't find it at all. So, Cripplefoot. It all started in November of 1969 when researcher Renee Dahinden got a call from John Green about a friend of his named Ivan Marks who had been tracking a Bigfoot recently. And as I'm sure you can guess by its nickname, this Bigfoot was a crippled Bigfoot. That's his word, not mine. Um, It had a malformed right foot and left footprints in uh, near a dump. So they get the, the, you know, they they get out there to the dump pretty quick. Renee, he gets out there. And even though the tracks were trampled by a lot of people, Renee says he still sees one complete footprint because it had been covered by a cardboard box for safekeeping. So they lift up the cardboard box. Sure enough, he sees an odd looking Bigfoot print. So Renee sets up base camp in town and starts interviewing locals and searching the wilderness, trying to find out everybody who's seen him, when they've seen him, where they've seen him, everything. He goes out searching the wilderness for more tracks, and he even starts leaving out meat scraps as bait for Cripplefoot. This next part you're going to have to take with a grain of salt. That's right, it's grain of salt time for the first time on this episode. On December 13th, Renee is out in a jeep with Ivan Marks, and they're cruising around to see if any of the meat baits were taken. Now, Ivan parks the Jeep. He gets out of the Jeep and goes off on his own before returning to say, Hey, I found Bigfoot tracks. Renee himself had said that before he and a passenger had seen the tracks, Ivan Marks pulled over, got out, walked off, returned shortly, explaining that he had to leave immediately to retrieve his camera equipment since he had just found tracks. But... This was just after they had passed an empty Jeep parked beside the road, and Renee thought they might have been the ones that made these fresh tracks. Now, the Jeep was gone when they returned. When they went to go get this camera and come back, when they got back, the Jeep was gone. But Renee said that ultimately, after seeing all the tracks that I'll get to in a minute, ultimately, he accepted the tracks as authentic. And I'll get to that. I'll get to why in a minute. All right, so what did they find? Did they find one or two tracks? Nope. 
they found over 1,000 footprints in the snow. And these footprints were going along the railroad tracks, across it, across a highway, over a three-foot fence, under a pine tree, and under this pine tree, they found a few toe prints. Now, they investigated more and then went up a steep hill and back down again side by side. So, like, the tracks went up this hill, get to the top, and then right back down side by side. Now, they all said this would have been incredibly hard for someone faking the prints to do this. That, that it would have been too hard to get up there as easily as it was and get down there. That the tracks were so clean. But that cripple foot went up and down with no hesitations or problems. But what they found next pisses me off. And pardon the pun before you even get to the point why you know it's a pun. What'd they come across? Well, they came upon a large patch of yellow snow. Yep, Bigfoot pissed in the snow. So, they must have collected samples of it since they were out looking for a Bigfoot, right? Nope. The dumbasses went, huh, Bigfoot pee, and then just kept on walking. Until they finally lost tracks of the prints in the gravelly riverbank. You're investigating a Bigfoot. You're on an active investigation of a Bigfoot. You come across yellow snow, you get a sample of that yellow snow. Alrighty, so let's get to the reason he's called Cripplefoot. The left print measured 17 and a half inches long and six and a half inches across at the ball of the foot. The right, quote unquote, crippled foot measures 16 and a half inches long and seven inches across. So it's shorter and it's wider. The right print also showed more compression than the left, and uh, anthropologists and everybody else say that this suggests that the body weight is favored on the right side. So Rene says that he believed the creature to have a shorter right leg and endured an accident that dislocated the shin bone. But now let me tell you what experts said at that time verbatim from a report about Cripplefoot. Dr. Grover Krantz, who is a well-respected anthropologist, who actually cast up the prints in the snow that were found, believes the tracks made by the crippled individual are authentic and simply too sophisticated to be faked. Notably, he penciled in anatomical structure of the bones upon the plaster cast. I'll get to that in a little bit. Dr. Jeff Meldrum, professor of anatomy and anthropology and an expert on foot morphology and locomotions in primates. That's got to be a very specific field and a very finite number of people that do it. Uh, he believes that the track to be authentic and the chances of a hoax to be, quote, almost non-existent. He detailed the structure of the foot and appears to accept Grover Krantz's skeletal outline. The malformed right foot has been previously misidentified as a case of talipsis, Equiniversus. Equiniversus? Man, I feel like I just did a Harry Potter spell. Or clubfoot. However, it is consistent with the general condition of pes cavus, specifically metatarsus adductus, or possibly skewfoot. Its unilateral manifestation, manifestation makes it more likely that the individual is suffering from a lesion on the spinal cord rather than a congenital deformity. Regardless of the epitomology, the uh, epidemiolo epidemiology, sure. The pathology highlights the evident distinction of skeletal anatomy. The prominent, oh, fuck off. Um, uh, the lateral margin of the foot marks the positions of the calcinobidoid and the cubinobal metatarsal joints. 
which are positioned more distal than in a human foot. You guys know all this, right? I don't need to tell you all this. You know exactly what I'm saying. Uh, this accords with the inferred position of the transverse tarsal joints and confirms the... Fuck off. It's a, it's a cripple foot. This guy looked at it and went, yep, that's a cripple foot, in a nutshell. All right, Dr. David Howe, who is an orthopedic surgeon, let's throw him in there. He says he believes the prints are wholly authentic and not wholly like, um, you know, holy Christ, but wholly like there's a whole lot of it. Um, he says that it would be very difficult to come up with the knowledge and the ability to fabricate the structure of the foot. He also feels that it could be a Lisfranc injury dislocation of the metatarsal bones from the t from the tarsus the cluster of bones that including the ankle and heel that are in between the toes and the shin bones if the creature suffered a Lisfranc injury without medical treatment the residual deformity could heal over in that direction so this guy who seems to know his stuff knows way more about feet than me or quentin tarantino he says that that residual deformity could heal over in that direction and cause this kind of a footprint uh, speaking of uh, experts, uh, Quentin Tarantino said, damn, and he really liked that foot. Okay, so it's really up to you to say whether you believe Cripplefoot was real or not. But again, a lot of evidence does seem to say that when the bones of a foot are drawn on the cast of the Cripplefoot, they do line up with a deformed real foot from something huge. I just wish those tracks were found without that random Jeep sighting. And also that the supposed experts would have been smart enough to collect a sample of fucking piss. But it's that Jeep sighting that makes me hesitant, and I hate being hesitant. Again, if you find Bigfoot pee, grab a sample of it. Put it in your water bottle or something. That DNA alone could have went a long way to prove Bigfoot's existence. Okay, let's continue on to another one. This next one is from Harrison Mills, British Columbia, 1934. The local newspaper headline was Boogeyman of the Indian Tribe Appears Again in Harrison Mills, in Harrison Mills, British Columbia, March 3rd, 1934. Indian children clung to their mother's apron strings today for the terrible Sasquatch, a giant, hairy, and horrid, is on the prowl again. For hundreds of years, the Sasquatch has been a fearsome boogeyman to the Northwest Indians. None had been reported for 30 years, but horror swept the lodges of the primitive Chahalas tribe again today. And you know what? Let's make sure that I'm saying Chahalas correctly, because I don't want to be disrespectful to Native Americans or indigenous people. One second, please. Chahalas. Chahalas. Well, see? Yep. I was, okay, yeah, okay, thank you. Jesus. Yep. See, I was wrong. Chahalas. So, horror swept the lodges of the primitive Chahalas tribe today, as word was whispered that the, that the hairy wild one had returned. Frank Dan was the first to report sightings of the monster. He went out into the night to see why his dog was barking so furiously, and he came face to face with a hairy giant, tall, muscular, and nude. The Sasquatch and scores of other demons are very real to the Chehalis. There are things of horror emerging to snatch an Indian into the unknown and to devour babies. It was picked, this story was picked up by a lot of people as well in 1934. So it's a very big story about a Bigfoot sighting that's very good. It mentions Native Americans or indigenous people, local indigenous people. That always lends credibility as far as I'm concerned. Now, while researching the Chehalis Bigfoot encounter, I found another one, a modern day one from Chehalis, Washington this time. And it says, I live in Chehalis, Washington on Sean Road, or Sen Road, across from the Warehouser land. 
I had two close contact experiences as a child there. The first one happened when I was 11. My grandparents were visiting and they had their camper parked next to our house. My brother and sisters were out with them playing cards. We're out there, we're out there with them playing cards. My mom and dad were in their bedroom and I was playing the piano in the living room. Behind me is a large picture window looking out into a neighbor's field and beyond that is the warehouser land. Okay. As I was playing with my back turned to the window, I had a someone is watching me feeling. So I turned around and there approximately 10 feet in front of me watching me play piano is this hairy creature. He was taller than the picture window because he was bending in, he was bending to see in. His arms were long, his eyes were reddish brown as was his hair. It became darker on his main body but was lighter on his face and chest area. His upper body was pretty buff. It took me a while to scream as I was frozen in fear for a bit, but when I finally did scream, he took off. My dad ran out and saw the back of it running away. My grandparents and sisters and brothers saw it. My grand my grandparents and sister and brother saw it run by the camper, and then dad saw it run through our fields to the creek. So that's six people that saw it. I, of course, having the closest encounter. The second sighting at the same house, my best friend was staying the night and I had made my bedroom in the back of the truck with the topper on it. It was summer. The truck was parked a little ways from our house by the barn. We were both in bed talking and then suddenly the light from the house was blocked out. I saw a face in the topper side window looking at us. At first I thought it was one of my siblings, but as my eyes adjusted to the light, I realized it was the hairy face I had seen in the picture window months before. I then froze and whispered to my friend also not to move. It watched for what seemed like an eternity, maybe waiting for us to move, which we didn't. Then it moved towards the open back gate window to our horror. I thought it was coming to get us, but it never showed up back there. When we got up the courage to get out and go to my house, we told everyone what had happened. They'd all been together watching a movie. No one had been away from the, uh, no one had been away from the rest. Those are my two accounts. I'd like to add that there was intelligence in the eyes and also some sort of and also some sort of nonverbal communication. Also noticed the second time when it was me and my friend in the back of the pickup, I did get occasional whiffs of a musky body funk smell. Also heard weird howling sounds often in the evening. They weren't quite the same as the coyotes, but they were similar. So again, a real encounter with the Bigfoot twice for this person, how she was ever brave enough to go, you know, it's only been a few months since I saw that thing in the picture window. I'm sure we'll be fine. Let's go camp out in the back of a truck. Screw that. Okay, this leads us to the final tale of the night. And this last tale is known as the Beast of Whitehall. Now, this one happened in August of 1976 when two guys, Marty Paddock and Paul Gosselin, were driving through the swampy woods near Whitehall, New York. They said, as they were driving with the windows down on the truck, they heard a scream that came from the forest around them. They hit the brakes and listened for a minute, wondering what they had just heard. They even got out of the truck and looked around the tree lines around them. When they didn't hear or see anything else, they started driving again and they started talking about what the hell, what the hell could have made that scream. Sorry, I, uh, sorry, I just got a text there from a buddy of mine who said he's loving the podcast. That's very nice of you, Joe. Um, and it's also scary because now I'm wondering if you're just sitting outside my house right now, listening to me as I'm recording this one. Um, I'm not going to look out the window just in case it is. And he's wearing a Bigfoot mask. That'd be all too real. Um, so let's see, where are we? Um, they're driving around. They were trying to figure out what the hell could have made that scream. So they were so worried about what they had heard 
that they actually turned around and drove back to the same spot. Now, it was getting darker by this time, and they said that uh, when they scanned the area around them, they noticed something large and dark moving along the barbed wire fence nearby them. They said based on the fence alone, they determined it was about seven or eight feet tall and standing there on two legs, and it was looking at them. And that's when it started walking towards them. They both jumped back in the truck and they took off, and I can't blame them at all. Uh, they headed to the Whitehall police station because Paul's brother was an officer there, and they told him what they had seen. Now, the police didn't really seem to believe the guys, so the guys went out and got another friend of theirs and headed back to the spot again. Now, this time, all three guys in the truck saw it again, nearby, but further away, and they again freaked out and then returned to the police station. Now, they took the third guy's statement a little bit more seriously. Why? I have no idea. So they called the state police to go and investigate what these guys keep seeing at this same spot. So a state trooper says, all right, we're going to go to that spot. You guys meet us there. And so he got there, met up with the three guys who pointed where they had last seen it. And he even saw it. He said it was larger than any black bear and different. So at least this time, we have a guy who knows what he's talking about. He's a trooper in the area. He's out there all the time. He knows what a bear looks like even on two legs, and he said this wasn't a bear. Now, three of them, or actually the four of them, are watching it, and they said they watched it walk away, and so they ran over to the spot to see its prints, which were, quote, very similar to a man's, very similar to a man's prints, only larger. So the next night, Officer Goslin and that state trooper both went back to stake out that area. They were in separate cars, and they were staking out that area. They heard heavy footfalls from the forest and started to walkie-talkie each other like, did you hear that? Yeah, I heard that. And one of the guys lit up the spotlight on the cruiser and pointed it into the woods. And that's when they saw a large, hairy man about 50 feet away. Now, they estimated him to be about 300 pounds, large-eyed, 7 to 8 feet tall, and they both said it definitely wasn't a bear. They thought it looked like an ape or they thought it looked ape-like. Now, thankfully, even though Officer Goslin said he pulled his weapon and had it pointed at the creature, he said it appeared too human-like, and he just couldn't shoot it. Yay! Good on you, Officer Goslin, for not fucking shooting Bigfoot. So, they leave because, well, frankly, it's nighttime and they were afraid, and rightfully so. But they come back the next day in the daylight and they go over to that area where they find a ton of prints. They noted that the prints did not have the telltale claw marks of a bear and were too far apart for a man to hoax them. Now, even though sporadic reports came in from around that area, this was the last best sighting of the Beast of Whitehall. Now, I really like that one because we have law enforcement officers who are witnesses. They know what they're looking at. Most times eyewitness testimony is not the best testimony, as I'm sure you guys all know. These guys were law enforcement officers. They saw it repeatedly. People were seeing this thing on a nightly basis in that same area. They said it wasn't a bear. They know exactly what the bear looked like in that area. When they went to investigate the prints, they didn't just go, yep, that's a book Bigfoot print. No, they looked down and went, if that was a bear... Where are the claw marks? Because I don't know if you've ever seen a bear's foot. There's some really cool photos of like uh, scientists holding up like tranked bear's feet. 
Their feet are freaking huge. Bigfoot, 100%. But they have ginormous claws that would be visible from those prints. These prints did not have them. So yes, I know that if he had taken that shot, he could have killed the Bigfoot and we would have 100% Bigfoot or real proof. But come on. That's not how you guys want it. That's not how I want it either. That's not how I want Bigfoot to be proven to be real. I really don't want us to finally find this very rare, very elusive, very old species because we fucking shot one. Let's not kill a Bigfoot to prove that Bigfoot are real. We don't need to do that. I, you don't have to kill a whale for me to go, a whale is real. I've seen it. A whale is real. Let's just find one. If you have to tranquilize it and get a blood sample or tissue sample or whatever, I don't want it in captivity. I don't want it killed. I'm sure you guys are the same way. Okay, so there you have it. Another all Bigfoot episode. Remember, shirts are available at paranormalalmanac.storeenvy.com. Check out Facebook or Instagram to see the design, which I got to say again, I love it. I can't thank you enough, Jessica, for making this design for me. It was well worth the money. Best money I ever spent. I, I've already bought a shirt. It hasn't, hasn't arrived yet. As soon as it does, I'll be wearing that shirt all the time. It's the first of many new shirts and merch for the good old Paranormal Almanac. So what do you guys think? Do you guys think Bigfoot are real? If so, how come we're not finding them? How come we're not spotting them? How come they seem to be so elusive? How are they so good at keeping away from man when man is doing its best to destroy everything that's wild out there? How are hunters not shooting Bigfoot so they can have a photo of them with a dead Bigfoot, which would be disgusting, but you know that there are these big trophy hunters that that would be their biggest thing. As soon as you say, hey, Bigfoot are real, some asshole big trophy hunter is going to want one to mount up on his wall. I seriously hope that never happens, but what do you guys think? Do you think Bigfoot are real? Do you think that most Bigfoot sightings are just misidentified bear? I can kind of get behind that one. I really can. Have you ever seen a bear on its hind legs? They're fucking huge. They're fucking terrifying. And they do walk. I can kind of get behind that one. But not every sighting. And not these sightings when people are right there. Eye to eye contact. You've seen what a bear looks like. If you were looking at a bear 50 feet away, 10 feet away, whatever. 50 yards away. You would know what a bear's face looks like. And it's not what a Bigfoot's face looks like at all. So something's out there. People are seeing a hell of a lot of them. I hope they're real. I can't wait to see one for myself. I can't thank you all enough for listening to this episode. Once again, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig. This has been another edition of Paranormal, don't fucking shoot Bigfoot, Almanac. Still a, still a breath has.